I am Sheen, a scientist, social entrepreneur, Oxford and Cambridge graduate, and you are listening to Dream Girl, my weekly podcast where I chat to incredible women about their journey, career choices, and generally about being awesome. Hello and welcome back to Dream Girl. My guest today is Dr. Alia Kamsani. Alia is a lightweight Saudi female rower. She holds a PhD in cancer research from Oxford University, where we actually met. She began rowing at Oxford and took part in many rowing regattas, both locally and nationally, including the Women's Eights Head of the River in London, which is the largest women's race in the world. And while in Dubai, Alia also participated in the UAE Rowing Championships and won a gold medal in the women's squad and a silver in the women's double. She is actively involved in widening the participation of women in sport while also working in the field of public health and cancer research in New York. Hello, Alia. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you, Sheen, for inviting me on your podcast. No, it's really good to hear your voice again. I was just thinking about this, that your voice has literally not changed at all since I remember the last time we spoke, the same laugh, the same intonation. Love it. It's like bringing back so many memories. (laughs) Uh, it's funny. It's funny because I, I keep, you know, I'm so conscious of losing the British accent being in in the US, <laughs> and I think it's, I think it's, in, in, I don't know, it's emphasised it more. So I, I, I become more British when I speak, which is quite hilarious, I find. But yeah, <laughs> do people comment on it a lot? <laughs> it's funny they do here. They love it. They're like, okay, oh, talk, you know, say that again, please. Can I? I just want to hear it again. <laughs> We love the accent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I keep having this conversation with a lot of Americans, actually, where they say that for Americans, when you have a British accent, you sound intelligent. (laughs) And they immediately assume that you're intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's a good thing. But I don't know how how accurate that is. But yeah. Yeah, it works for you. So, you know. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah, I'll take that. (laughs) So you are in New York at the moment. I am. Yes. How is it? It's snowing at the moment or is it not? So it's on and off at the moment. So I'm based uh, a little bit outside um, New York City. So I'm based in Western mm-hmm. County, um, mm-hmm. which is like a half an hour train ride to the city. Um, so we're a little bit more isolated and, you know, surrounded more by greenery and mm-hmm. you know fresh air, which is really nice. Um, also, being more isolated, um, you know, we're kind of far away from the hustle and bustle of the city. But then again, yeah, when winter hits and the snow, you know, starts, it can get pretty bad up here. Mm. So it's pretty on and off. Um, it's it's sunny, which is nice, comparison to the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes a big difference, I think. <laughs> and how, how was it like during COVID? You've been there this whole time, right? Since COVID mm-hmm. started. How so, was it? Yeah, so initially it was like, oh, yeah, you know, nothing, nothing of a big deal. And then slowly, slowly, we started to realize, okay, this is something we should be taking seriously. Um, And it was pretty bad initially. Um, You know, we were under lockdown. um, But again, being away from the city was a blessing. Um, You know, we had like, um, we have open areas where we can walk um, and still get some fresh air and not be cooped up too much indoors. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't, I didn't actually experience how bad it was, uh, in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it did get pretty bad out here as well. Um, yeah. And it's just been the process of adapting to the change, getting used to all the zoom meetings, um, being, you know, spending the majority of the time indoors, especially during summer was, I mean, it progressively got better and things started opening up. But the gyms took a while to, you know, reopen. Um, that kind of thing was a little bit difficult to deal with. But alhamdulillah, you know, things are getting a little bit better. Gyms are have reopened. They have regulations in place. Mm-hmm. We're still wearing masks. But I think we're pretty much getting used to it now. I love how for you the main thing was that gyms were closed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my, like, priority. I'm gyms thinking were restaurants oh, no. were closed earlier. Restaurants were closed <laughs> no it's like I got really upset when the gym's closed I was like no you can't do this to me (laughs) (laughs) oh my god okay I I was sad too because you know that meant that I I can I cannot start going to the gym so there we go yeah Uh, but yeah okay let's go back a few years now so um we met in Oxford I still remember the first time I met you I remember you were part of the like cool older girl gang you remember (laughs) No, I didn't remember that. 
<laughs> it was you and like Sabah, Faria, and all of that. All of you were just like oh, super the house cool. Of love. That's what we call the it. house of love. Exactly, yeah. the house of love. I remember meeting all of you. You're with your puffer jacket and your bag. Oh. That was your style, and your you had this hijab that had flowers on. I just remember oh you in god, that. Yeah, that was back in the day. Oh my god, that's oh. really interesting to kind of get a perspective from someone else that was like <laughs> <laughs> puffer jackets. I still wear them, but yeah, floral hijabs have like yeah, we've moved on since then. <laughs> we've made better decisions. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god yeah I was I was like the little new person who started and I remember meeting you and you telling me all about cancer research and we used to go for sushi do you remember in the covered market I don't I remember sushi covered market yeah actually there was that little store wasn't there next right at the back yeah yes yes oh my god that's a long time ago because I remember when I think of you I think of Mahreen it's really interesting (laughs) I I hate it everybody says that (laughs) I am my own person (laughs) and I remember yeah I remember we were like yeah it was fun fun time yeah, so tell me, how how was your whole time in Oxford? Because when I came, it was like your final few years, isn't it? So how was it? Well, I think a lot of people get confused because my time in I spent, when I look back and I'm like, oh, where did all that time go? I realized <laughs> I spent, yeah, I spent a, a, quite a while in Oxford pre- prior to doing my PhD. So once I finished my master's um, mm-hmm. in London, um, I applied for an internship um, at the same department that I ended up doing my um, PhD in mm-hmm. um, up in Old Road campus. So I was, um, yeah, I was do. It was interning at the time. Um, I was working as like a research assistant um, mm-hmm. for a couple of years before I decided to kind of move to to doing a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that kind of interim period where I was kind of you know affiliated with the university, but not entirely affiliated. I was working more than you know. I was yeah more. Uh, um, a research assistant than I was a student so mm-hmm. I think that made the difference for me in terms of my the way you know how I looked at Oxford so initially I kind of saw it as like a countryside town coming from London big city mm-hmm. and it took me a while to kind of you know get to like it because I would go you know even the house of love girls they were like oh my god you keep going to London every weekend you know (laughs) (laughs) literally I couldn't get enough of London London I want to go back um but it wasn't until I think I started the DPhil program Mm -hmm. that I kind of really kind of began to kind of uh, you know settle down in Oxford really appreciate what it offered me um, mm-hmm. And I think by that time it had evolved, you know, we had the, they were starting to get, you know, more shops mm-hmm. and it was a little bit more, you know, there's more entertainment, better restaurants. So mm-hmm. I think that helped, it helped a great deal as well to kind of mm-hmm. get used to the environment and slowly and slowly, you know, over time begin to to kind of really love the Oxford experience. Mm. Have you heard that the new Westgate is completely revamped now? Yes, I, I, well, when I left, because I was still, I was there back in the last I was there. Oh, here we go again. Hang on. I was there <laughs> a lot, tw- 2019. 19. Yeah. 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 So, yes, yes. Um, I, I'm sure it's like, I, at the time I know they were like, there were signs for like, oh, you know, opening soon and whatnot. So I, I can believe that for sure. Honestly, I've been, and it's amazing. It's like Westfield now, basically. It's massive. Yeah, there's no point. See, there's no point in going to London. <laughs> no, it's massive. It's got like rooftop restaurants. It's absolutely amazing. And I was like, in my time, this had just had like yeah. a sports direct that was always yeah. closing down and a Sainsbury's. <laughs> yeah, it was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and now and now it's like this massive thing with loads of shops. It's got John Lewis now. Because so. I remember Cambridge was so much better than Oxford in terms mm. of like shopping and what they had to offer. And then Oxford yeah. was like a little bit lagging behind. Mm-hmm. Um, but the coffee shops, I, I, oh. I fell in love. Yeah, during my default, I was just like, oh, discover- there were three or four main coffee shops that I, you know, alternated between. Um, but I really did like that. You know, it was very intimate and uh, kind of like close. They're rustic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it had those like Oxford vibes. You know, you feel that you feel the intellectualism in the air. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. yeah. I remember you really like that coffee shop that was close to that bookshop off the high street, wasn't it? In that little alley. 
Oh God! Now you're putting my you put me to test. <laughs> you're, you <laughs> you remember, what was it called? You remember from the back of Covered Market? If you walk, oh, missing bean. That's the one. Yeah. Yes. There we go. I, yeah. I, I remember seeing you in the window of that coffee shop quite a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was probably meant to be in the lab at those places, but yeah um yeah no I, I yeah that's a really cute cafe um mm. but there were there are other ones that have I think on the high street there's another one cute little one with like um a window overlooking like the, the high street with all the colleges which is really cute as well oh, yeah. and then there's one down Cowley because I moved several times when I was in Oxford and I think that was what helped actually moving more towards the city because you know I was up mm -hmm. near the old road campus um, yeah. in Hillingdon is mm -hmm. it Hillingdon oh I remember yeah so um yeah coming down making that trek all the way down to the city, mm -hmm. like you know it, it effort. required effort yeah mm. so I think living eventually I was living closer to the city Cowley and then I stayed in um yeah I moved from from you know shared housing from one shared housing to another so mm -hmm. um yeah that enabled me to kind of you know explore a little bit more uh, of the kind of um city area and mm -hmm. you know the colleges and feel more immersed within the kind of oxford area yeah and i suppose when it came to choosing your your like phd or dfil project was it was it easier given that you already knew what was happening what they're working on yeah so i think it really helped and i always advise students who ask me you know how how should we go about you know taking on you know a, a dfil you know applying for dfil etc um i think mm -hmm. because um i the project i was working on i mean the project i was working on during the internship is not the project that i ended up doing part of the DFIL mm -hmm. but it kind of because I knew the lab because I had kind of made connections already I knew my supervisor it was kind of con connected in in terms of the project sub you know the subject that I was I was uh, working on it was kind of, it could be connected in in different ways and especially the techniques that they used to you know do in the lab there were the similar techniques to what I was going to end up doing during the DFIL mm -hmm. so yeah, that really helped to kind of give me confidence to kind of, you know, develop an interest towards um, a specific topic. I, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I definitely wanted to do something more on the, you know, the medical side of things, clinical medicine, um, something more applicable to kind of like patients, um, as opposed to just something that was more biochemistry based. Mm -hmm. And how did you find academia? Like, were you tempted to stay on? Um, I was, uh, I was tempted to stay on. I did try, I don't know, see, I wanted to go into, ultimately, I still want to explore, um, more the teaching side of things because I did mm -hmm. get a bit of experience during the DFIL doing mentoring and mm -hmm. I did a bit of like, um, uh, you know, teaching here and there. Mm -hmm. Um, so I did want to, I did contemplate, you know, continuing on within that kind of, um, direction uh, but I, I was willing to be open-minded and explore other options and I did really you know after being in the lab for that long it, it is a lonely experience um, mm -hmm. it's very it's you know you require it requires a lot of motivation especially when you kind of face so many failures when it comes to like experiments going wrong yeah um, so it requires a certain type of person and um I mean, as much as I love science and research, I really did want to kind of get more involved in, you know, um, the community and application of science and research in terms of, you know, actually making a difference in people's lives. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then what did, how did you choose what would be next after uni in terms so of career? Everything in terms of like my direction has come about all pretty organically. Mm-hmm. Um, and after finishing my default, I did, you know, I'd been studying nonstop. So I did want to take some time out to kind of rethink things, mm -hmm. um, kind of, you know, reevaluate what, where I wanted to go, which direction I wanted to kind of take. Um, and that was when, um, you know, I moved to Dubai, um, I had a few months to myself, um, mm -hmm. in between, you know, uh, preparing for my defense. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then, you know, moving to New York City, I also had an interim period, um, you know, before applying for jobs. And I, it so happened that the the job that I applied for and was interested and, in, you know, was kind of brought to my attention was one which involved um, being a post-doc, postdoctoral associate in the pathology lab, but also mm-hmm. um, at the same time, you know, being more involved in the public health sector, you know, um, ed- advocating and educating, um, you know, uh, in regards to policy change when it comes to kind of like healthy eating and healthy living and mm-hmm. and in relation to cancer. So that was an opportunity that I really kind of was excited about. And it's it's been, I mean, since starting, I've really, really enjoyed it. So I get a little bit of both worlds in that, you know, I'm still doing research, cancer-related research, mm-hmm. but I'm also, you know, tapping into the more public health side of things. That is really cool. I didn't know there were jobs that exist at this intersection. That's the thing they don't. I don't think they do. It's just when I was interviewed, I mentioned that, you know, I have this interest. And, Mm -hmm. you know, then it was suggested, oh, actually, you might fit in here. How? What do you think about, you know, dividing your role? Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't actually think that kind of a job would be, you know, available to me. You know, the fact that I haven't done a master's in public health either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that was a really good, like for me, a, an opening, um, you know, uh, to, you know, step foot in, in, in that direction. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit more about public health, you, the public health side of your job? So, yeah, so basically I've been, my role is basically focused on youth. So I'm the lead program in terms of the youth educational side of things. Mm-hmm. So we kind of, what I do is I'm setting up, um, curriculum, educational curriculum towards uh, educating the youth about different kind of cancers that mm-hmm. are prominent within the New York City area. Okay. So we deal with a specific catchment area. We've done the research and background to see which cancers are more um, prominent. And mm-hmm. we basically target those cancers and the youth within those areas and, you know, develop programs whereby we can educate them. Um, we collaborate with a number with Columbia University um, you know, MSK in New York City as well. So the main kind of hospitals and institutes, cancer institutes, to kind of work together to develop, yeah, different programs and div- different kind of projects, you know. So it's pretty much, it's pretty much open-ended. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's part of the community of outreach and engagement at Wheel mm-hmm. Cornell Medicine. Um, so yeah, that's developing as we speak. I've worked in a number of projects in the past in starting. Um, so one of them has been on vaping mm-hmm. because that's quite popular amongst the youth. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, it's something that's really kind of advertised as being cool on, you know, social media, among celebrities, influencers, etc. And the harms are really, I mean, it, and even it's, adver- you know, it's uh, advertised as being safer than cigarette smoking, which actually it's not. And especially mm. for the developing brain and youth, it's, it's, you know, it's can, it's very bad. So, um, and also um, very much interested in HPV education as well. Mm-hmm. And also an, another thing that we do as part of my role is kind of target disparities, health disparities amongst different communities um, and try and figure out ways in which we can better educate, better kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of eliminate kind of pre preconceived kind of mm-hmm. things that they may have, you know, picked, people may have picked up along the way culturally or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting role. Um, it's fairly new for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you, you know, I'm kind of like, youth program lead so it's quite demanding at the same time and but then at the same time I can balance it out with my research that I do on the side which unfortunately due to COVID I haven't been able to start in the lab as yet (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah but but even your like public health work must have slowed down isn't it with COVID and lockdown and everything funnily enough not really that's good because we're doing everything online we're doing everything via zoom we're holding events you know roundtable discussions via zoom um you know people are attending um you know um online discussions you'd think it would have you know died down but in actual fact it hasn't and especially with COVID and disparities that are being you know brought to light 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think this is it, it's an important kind of like topic to talk about, and people are really interested. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, really cool. Yeah, you know, one question I do have, uh, which is on the vaping front. Mm-hmm. Um, so you—that's the thing. I also the only thing I've heard is how you know, oh, it's less harmful than cigarettes. But mm-hmm. how can they advertise this if this is not true? Well, that's the thing. <laughs> it's all money making <laughs> scheme, isn't it? Oh my goodness! Yeah, that then it's hard to actually convince people yeah, otherwise. Exactly, because it's being advertised in that light, you know. And people think, oh, I can take up vaping; it's cool. It's it's not as bad as cigarette smoking. It's pretty safe, and you know, um, it it's not going to do me any harm. When in actual fact, it does. I mean, the thing is, I'm working more on the preventative side of cancer mm-hmm. uh, in the public health kind of field. Um, so we want to target the youth. We want to target the young people before mm-hmm. it gets too late, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots of evidence to say, no, in actual fact, the aerosol that's, you know, heated, it, it's, you know, contains a number of chemicals, carcinogens, y- you name it. So, and these, and the, and the amount of, t- uh, you know, nicotine that's within these kind of vapes is much higher than the typical amount that you would smoke in a cigarette. Oof. Yeah. Wow. And the flavors, their flavors, they're they're all flavored. They all taste nice. They smell nice. Yeah. And it looks cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it does look cool. You know what? One time I was smelling this like blueberry muffin kind of vibe. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, there must be a bakery around the corner. I want some. And I turned around the corner and someone was just vaping. And I was like, okay. Okay. And within like the Arab culture, for instance, I like I collaborated with Will Cornell Kothar as well and mm. with one of the professors, the public health professors there that was working on, you know, specific targeting like the Arab community and the shisha smoking. Yeah, uh, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. It's pretty much the same, right? Yeah, and he was very it, the interesting thing is um how to kind of get the message across because a number of people you know it's a cultural thing it's a it's a, mm. it's about fitting in you know if you mm-hmm. say no no I don't want to kind of do this it's bad for my health you blame yeah exactly <laughs> so there's that peer pressure um that you know it, it you know shisha smoking especially in in the Arab community brings together people it's a, it's a form of socializing um so it's hard to break that habit and then you have um, smoking, you know, a lot of pregnant women in the Middle East. I think in Lebanon, he was a Lebanese professor, and he was saying it's ridiculous. They just smoke while pregnant. So, Seriously? Um, yeah. So there's, and then there's the issue of consent, and the same thing with HPV uh, vaccinations, and you know, awareness when it comes to that. You've got so much, so many, you know, misconceptions in relation to to kind of education that parents are worried that if we kind of bring up the topic of you know vaping or hpv then that's exposing ultimately mm-hmm. exposing um the you know children to these kind of concepts and then right. they will be more likely to go and try mm. when you know that's they're probably doing it without you knowing anyway you know what i mean exactly um, so it's about tackling um kind of you know these these kind of uh you know issues uh, in the right way and with the right messaging and you know just educating people because people just you know get a lot of information on social media they don't really verify anything that they read these days mm. um there's no there's a lack of independent thinking i mean that's what i see these days especially um and you know with covid especially you know affecting minorities disproportionately there's also that aspect and it's brought into you know the cl- clinical trials aspect as well where you know a lot of drugs that are being developed vaccines that are being developed are not really being tested on the people that actually you know need need them exactly and they're not being optimized um to be used in these kind of populations so you know it may work in in one population but then when you apply it to a different minority population it Mm -hmm. hasn't been studied as much so you've got people that are worried about you know taking part in clinical trials um, how do we go about, you know, promoting the promoting them as a good thing, getting them more involved? They have, there's a lot of mistrust. Mm-hmm. So it's about breaking all these kind of misconceptions and ideologies and just re-educating um, people, which I find really interesting. And it's really rewarding when you kind of, you impart that knowledge across and they're like, oh, wow, we didn't know that. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, 
oh that's interesting no definitely I'll you know make sure to to check in with my pediatrician especially the young people it's it's really fascinating and kind of like eye-opening to see them you know want to take initiative after you know learning something new Mm -hmm. you know so when it comes to what you were talking about in terms of the vaccination sometimes it's not suited to the population that it's being developed for Mm -hmm. so do you do you know why that is is it because there is not an interest on the side of the people who are developing the vaccine to try and make it fit these people or is it from both sides that there is a bit of resistance so it's both sides from what I've mm. seen and what I've kind of like what I've discussed with people in the field. It comes from both sides. Um, one, you know, physicians aren't advocating for people to participate in clinical mm. trials, these minority populations, um, minority populations at the same time. There's his, there's a hit, especially within the black community. There's a history of kind of like abuse and, you know, mm-hmm. it not being treated in the correct manner, you know, when it comes to um clinical trials yeah uh, and drug testing um so there's a resistance on both ends of the spectrum and that's why you've got to work with educating physicians you know you should be mentioning this to your patient this opportunity you shouldn't just be you know disregarding them as oh they're not going to participate I shouldn't really bother advising them um and then you've got to also work on the patient themselves um oh look it's not a bad thing to take part you know Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a reinstilling that trust which mm. takes takes time to kind of build up yeah so that's it's like faceted in the way we you know how you approach it basically mm-hmm. yeah um, that's like systemic changes at all levels mm-hmm. that takes mm-hmm. forever yeah <laughs> gosh yeah. well on that happy note <laughs> <laughs> other than your you know your day job um what we're here to talk about is your rowing so tell me how how did you join the cult for me rowing is a cult okay how did you join it so many times that's (laughs) so funny and people in Oxford have always said that you're just like you know yeah um it's interesting I don't like I always say this when I'm asked like when did you kind of how did you find out about rowing how do you get into Mm. it blah 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 um, I can't, I, 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 when I look back and try and remember, I just remember the only thing I recall is that I was, I was pretty much into fitness um, mm-hmm. from a young age. Um, I mean, I'd never taken up anything competitively. I had uh, dabbed a little bit in show jumping when I was back in the Middle East. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, and I, I was, I, I, I used to horse ride from a young age. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, moving back from the Middle East to the UK kind of, kind of got busy with like studying studies and you know that kind of thing and just kind of didn't lose interest but there wasn't much time to pursue it you know more professionally mm-hmm. um it's also a pretty expensive sport oh yeah um, <laughs> so um yeah and then so I think when I when I started my DPhil I was I was just randomly talking to someone about oh you know fitness health etc and they were like oh I've taken up you know started rowing on the rowing machine so full body workout you should try it out and me being me I was just like well I'm in Oxford why would I you know go sit on a rowing machine <laughs> which sounds really boring <laughs> yep. um, why don't I just you know look into kind of like a college um, kind of clubs that they have and that's how I found the rowing club Linica rowing club and mm-hmm. um, I just contacted them and I was just like um well I'd like to try rowing out um how does it you know how does one go about doing that etc so I signed up and coincidentally that time was it was summer mm-hmm. and if I am not mistaken they don't usually take on they don't really hold they do t- hold taster sessions within the summer but they don't actually you know start rowing in, in, as part of crews in, pre- in preparation for like you know the intercollegiate kind of competitions etc mm-hmm. um until later on in the year and so I was lucky to kind of alongside three of my other friends uh, who I met by rowing we all started um pretty fresh off the boat <laughs> no pun intended mm. <laughs> and we were like literally thrown into kind of like a, a pretty experienced crew um and it was that I, I guess it was just what well, I'm not a morning per- I was never a morning person I am now um but I wasn't and to wake up at like 6 a.m 5 a.m whatever I called down from the because you know back in um the day when I lived up on the hill um I cycled down yeah so um I used to cycle down to um, Boathouse Island um at like really early hours in the morning 
And I just, I don't know, caught the rowing bug, as they say. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> literally was addicted from day one. But honestly, that's what everybody says. I, I also have a friend who rows in Cambridge and, mm-hmm. and now she's trying to become a professional athlete as well. And she just loves it, the whole like torture in the morning. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need to have a, a high threshold for pain and putting yourself through discomfort. Um, oh. But I think for me, I think it gave me a routine. I mean, right. I thought that there was a social aspect of like, you know, oh, it's an all girls crew. You feel empowered. Um, Mm. you also feel like oh I'm actually you know everyone's asleep and I'm getting up to do something quite productive Mm -hmm. Um, and you know I feel really refreshed after um, I've had a session I go into like work I I can think clear you know more clearly Um, I have a little you know I have that energy you know from the morning okay by the afternoon you're probably you know falling asleep at your desk but um it's a really good start to the day. And I think it's also very, it's like a, it's like a, you know, a meditative process because you're looking at watching the sunrise when it's winter, you get to see the sunrise and then, you know, summer in in late evening, if you go out for a late row, you get to see Mm -hmm. the sunset, just being surrounded by nature. And, you know, Oxford is the best for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And just do the sound of the water. And it, it really does, like you just forget everything, like mm. all your worries, everything that's bothering you, and just get in the boat, and that you you don't have the time or the capacity to think about anything else other than okay, I really need not to catch a crab, and I really need to kind of <laughs> you know not let the crew down by mm. you know missing a stroke or not being in synchrony. So um, it's a really nice escape. Mm. And, and what was your experience like rowing, you know, uh, in London and stuff? Um, so the, uh, going to London for that, um, the women's head of the river mm-hmm. was really, it was quite an experience because I was actually, um, I was put in stroke seat and that in itself has a huge kind of pressure and responsibility because what does you that kind mean? Of, that means you're, you're the, you're kind of in the, you're, you're leading the crew basically you are determining the timing and rhythm and the same ah, thing. Okay. Everyone has to follow you. Mm-hmm. And then you have the cocks who's screaming in your face as well. Yes. <laughs> um, so that was a really nice experience. It was hilarious because we were literally rowing in hellstones. And oh my God. The weather was terrible. And there was a long row. It was a long row to get to your, I think there's, it's a huge race. So you have like 400, I don't know, maybe plus um cruise out on the water so you can imagine getting to your position it's Mm. a workout in itself Mm -hmm. Uh, and then having to row on the thames which is really choppy then with hailstones then the cox box decided decided to kind of fail Um, lovely (laughs) yeah so i was you know i was having to relay what the cox is saying to me (laughs) everyone else uh i think the cox actually lost her voice at the end of that um but it was really, really interesting. And it's, a, it's, this, um, it's the same stretch of river and the same distance that the Cambridge-Oxford um, race Boat race, yeah. Yeah, mm. it's the same. So it's pretty long. <laughs> it's mm, a head race. It's very long. Yeah. yeah. So that was also an experience. But it was so nice being back in London and seeing all the kind of like, um, you know, the, the, the land, landmarks. The landmarks and recognizing yeah. them. And like, oh, my God. Oh, no, you meant to be rowing. Stop looking <laughs> you know, head in the boat, head in the boat. <laughs> but like when it was healing and stuff weren't weren't your hands frozen by then no no so with the i've rode in snow as well that's when my my because with sweet rowing you've got one hand on the the oar right Mm. oar handle so yeah that what would happen is that um i did like occasionally have like feel numbness and i couldn't really feel much and it makes it difficult to row but with hailstones Mm. it's not it's cold it wasn't that cold to the point where um you'd go your hands would go numb no it was just yeah it's just you get all like wet and it's not very nice (laughs) oh not very nice that's a very nice way of putting that (laughs) I feel like it's a bit worse than that (laughs) probably in in retrospect it doesn't I can't remember it as being that bad but probably at the time I was like cursing (laughs) yeah but I mean you had fun right so that's probably why you decided to like stick to it so then when you moved to Dubai in that short time you also did championships rowing there right 
So what happened was, uh, as I, before leaving Oxford, I did, so I was, you know, I was rowing in big boats, eights, mm-hmm. fours. I was rowing sweep, which is one-sided, kind of one-sided rowing. Um, and I did uh, begin the transition into sculling, which is rowing with two oars. Yeah. Which is a lot, it requires a different skill set. It's different. Um, so I did try, you know, make, start to, start making that transition but it was very I didn't really have that many sessions out on the water mm-hmm. um still kind of you know getting my grip on like the you know the skill that was required to kind of um row in a skull uh, in, mm. you know skull so um uh, when I went to Dubai um yeah the first thing I kind of did was you know rowing a, literally was my life <laughs> in Oxford so <laughs> yeah. the one thing that I could hold on to that was familiar was rowing so I I looked up I don't even know how that happened like I say to you things happen organically where people mention (laughs) things or you find something online you're like oh wow oh you know um so I came you know I found out that they did have a rowing club they have one in Abu Dhabi and Dubai and I think there's one in Sharjah as well Mm -hmm. Um, but Dubai was the closest one um the problem was that it's not it wasn't a river it was like proper like it was the palm you know the palm yeah, I do. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's where they row. And that's a pretty not... nice area of Dubai. <laughs> nice, but water's not. Oh, water <laughs> not is not very, okay. <laughs> no, it's very, very it's like practically rowing in the sea. Ooh. Um yeah, it can get really, really uh, like choppy, which is not mm. ideal for someone that wants to learn mm. how to skull, especially in a single skull uh, <laughs> where you're prone to capsize. Um yeah. So, but I took that opportunity to be like, okay, they didn't have any, they, they have sweet boats, but they didn't routinely use them. It was more, they were more into sculling. So that's when I um, kind of, you know, I had the time, the weather was brilliant. I couldn't, com- can't complain about the weather. It was lovely. Even if you capsize, it's warm water. So it's all okay. Um, and that's when I kind of, you know, built on, you know, the, the built on my kind of experience when mm-hmm. it comes when it came to kind of like sculling and they hold competitions as well so after a couple of months um of being in a single skull um you know we entered into one of the UAE um rowing championships that they held mm-hmm. there you get a mix of different people attending but I it was my first kind of race that I did in in a single skull because that's a lot more difficult than the quad is a more balanced um the you know the the double is also more balanced as well Mm -hmm, but the mm -hmm. single is just very tippy you have no one you know um no cocks to kind of Mm. help you navigate you don't have a crew to kind of help you know um you know motivate you (laughs) to go faster. it's very lonely (laughs) it's very it's very it's an independent very much an independent feat which is Mm. nice it has its kind of like it has its pros and cons. Mm. So, um, yeah, so that's when I really started to kind of, you know, take it up a little bit more seriously, explore the kind of um, the rowing kind of scene in Dubai. Um, and, yeah, it was a really, really good experience. And I think that kind of, you know, kind of pushed me on to kind of pursue it further, like keep with it um, and, you know, look towards you know, taking it up a little bit more professionally. Mm. How, so tell me, how was that? Because obviously I followed it on your stories and stuff. I knew it just looked so professional and intense. You know, you had your coach, you had like all your rowing gears and stuff. How was it? Like walk me through the day of when you have like a, a, a race. So, well, it's it's the training actually that builds up towards the kind of race day. Race day is always nerve wracking. It's always been whether whatever you're whether you're in an eight or a single. Yeah, you're always going to get those pre race nerves. Um, you're always going to be like you know at the start line is the most intense kind of nerve wracking experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know when they you know attention start you know <laughs> row. Um, it's that, you know, that kind of sense of foreboding that you kind of, it's, yeah, it's just exhilarating, but at the same time, it's so kind of like scary. Mm. Um, You know, you don't want to miss a stroke. You want to make sure that you, you know, you also pace yourself appropriately 
And it depends because rowing is all about the weather as well. It's all weather dependent. So um, you have to kind of adapt as you go along. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be kind of, it's exciting. I'm not going to say it's not, it's addictive. That's why I've kind of kept at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's predominantly, um, most of the time is spent in the training period leading up to the race. So getting to peak fitness, um, the training kind of like schedule is, can be pretty intense. So mm-hmm. when I was, um, so uh, yeah, when I was attending camps, so I attended a number of camps, um, we used to train three times a day, mm-hmm. which can be really grueling on your mm-hmm. physical body. Um, you know, you just eat, sleep, row, literally. Um, so that's, yeah, that's like twice on the water, one one time indoors, strength training session or ergo session. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty much, it takes over your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a while, I kind of enjoyed that experience of, you know, this is what it's like. It's actually all the hard work that goes on beyond, you know, behind the scenes. And then you turn up on race day and, you know, it, it's that accumulation of, you know, um, getting yourself to that peak um, mm-hmm. over, you know, the course of several months or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, yeah, it, it was interesting because during, while at Oxford, it was pretty much, it was competitive, but it was intercollegiate. Mm-hmm. So they did take into consideration the fact that, you know, you were a student, a student athlete, and it wasn't so intense. And the commitment was a little bit more, you know, okay, we would have to commit in advance for races and that's that kind of thing. But they'd mm-hmm. understand if you had like, you know, a, a lecture you had to be at or labs. Yeah. And with labs, it's it's very difficult because, you know, you know you've, you've experienced it yourself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the experiment doesn't go to plan. You end up being later than you know, oh, yeah. being that kind of thing so it's difficult and I did um before leaving Oxford I did sign up with the lightweights Oxford lightweights um and I did I I had every intention of kind of signing up to trial with them mm-hmm. uh for the you know upcoming competitions and the boat race um but unfortunately due to my working schedule at that time during the PhD I just had yeah. to kind of prioritize because there were so many stories that I'd heard that people hadn't finished their PhD on time especially oh, yeah. when it came to like a you know a science PhD um because you, you need to be in the lab in. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so so even though I really wanted to do that and you know gain the experience from that um it was just not feasible so when I had the opportunity and the free time um I kind of went all out and said you know what this is, I don't know when this opportunity is going to come again let's yeah. do it my all and let's really experience what this is all about and see if it's something that I really want to do mm-hmm. um and but at the same time I do believe you can manage the training alongside working okay and, and I think it's you know I like I'm the type of person that likes to have not not all my eggs in one basket so mm-hmm. I like to you know the rowing balances out the kind of stress that I you know experience during work um mm-hmm. and vice versa so I like having a bit of both worlds you know mm-hmm. where you know I, I tr- do my training um in and around my work day um I stay fit I'm able to go out on the water and it's really dis- you know helps to de-stress um so yeah that's it's I mean in terms of the row uh, with rowing it's it's continuously adapting i don't see myself ever giving it up mm-hmm. um i am still kind of you know aiming for so my my goal at the moment is probably asian games 2022 oh yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, representing um ksa saudi arabia is like as a lightweight scholar, single mm-hmm. scholar. So that's mm-hmm. what I'm working towards. And I think that's a realistic aim for me as a lightweight rower, because with lightweights, yeah, it's a lot more difficult. You have to kind of meet a weight re- requirement before competitions. Yeah. You have to weigh in. Um, you have to keep within a certain weight range. And also mm-hmm. you have to be pretty kind of technical because you don't have that brute kind of yeah force that you can really rely on being mm. someone that's you know compared to someone that's taller and bigger say mm. uh, and weighs more so um it really it's all about perfecting the technique and really you know getting as much experience as you can which is what I'm doing in the single skull at the moment mm-hmm. 
So do you think that after this crazy year and after COVID has calmed down, you will start um, rowing again, like preparing for 2022? So I was really lucky during the whole COVID, um, you know, period. Mm. We were only off the water for like, say, I think two months, maybe. So Oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah, just focused on indoor um so the indoor um rowing erging um and then alhamdulillah you know my coach we were able to kind of purchase a a boat because the problem with covid is that i was previously sharing boats you know that they you know have as part of the club Mm -hmm. um but boat sharing became impossible with covid um and so we had to kind of find a way out in terms of getting on the water and only single skulls that's the in, that's the you know i was just saying to you like the pros and cons mm-hmm. single skull you're very independent so um you just need your boat and you can go out and you're anyway socially distancing in a single skull because you're not rowing with anyone mm. um so those are the boats that were being allowed out initially so having your own boat was definitely an advantage and I was happy to have found, found you know, someone was, you know, um, selling their boat. It was in really good condition. It's, it was a really good, you know, make and packer. So I was really happy and grabbed that immediately and was able to get back on the water pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Not long after. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I've been on the water up until November. Mm-hmm. winter it's pretty cold now so we generally that's the it's, it's the end of the season and usually you know everyone goes back indoors yeah to train um but the you know i do miss the fact that you know we used to have group training sessions now those are all gone they've all gone virtual because no one's really kind of gathering in that way mm-hmm. um so yeah we're waiting for the springtime to get back on the water and mm-hmm. And to continue, yeah, working towards my goal. That's really cool that you get to train even from New York, even if you will be representing Saudi. Yeah, so that's, I think it's because um, Saudi kind of, rowing in Saudi is still in the development stage. Mm -hmm. Um, So they still don't have facilities available for on the water rowing at the moment. Mm -hmm. They're, They're working on building that up. Um, and they're also working on building the interest of, you know, um, you know, people's interest when it comes to, you know, rowing and what's it about, because, um, indoor rowing is seen as more CrossFit. Mm-hmm. So, um, so they're focused at the moment on the indoor rowing aspect while they, you know, build up, uh, opportunities for people to try out, um, mm-hmm. on the water rowing. So I'm really you know, it's it's a privilege to be able to have the facilities I have here. They're really, really good. The mm-hmm. coach I'm working with has a lot of experience. Um, you know, he, um, you know, you know, the clubs that we we I train at are like I've trained with a number of really elite professional athletes, which gives you, you know, I find that you learn a lot from people that are, you know, much better than yourself, mm-hmm. um, and it really does push you to kind of improve. Um, so I've had, a, you know, I'm really grateful for the opportunities that I've had and kind of the exposure to, you know, really professional and um, really, you know, really brilliant athletes. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that we're talking about this. So what has been your experience, you know, because you've rode in England, in Dubai, Saudi and New York, which are all very different in terms of culture towards sports, etc. So what has been your experience of, you know, being a woman in sport? So being a woman in sport, I think generally speaking, you're, it's kind of, you're always going to be seen. I mean, things, times are changing. You know, we're seeing a lot of, lot more athletes proving that actually, you know, we can, you know, take this up as a career. This is something that we can be taken seriously in, in that kind of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, but culturally, it's still, I think, you know, Middle Eastern culture, Asian culture, it's still seen as, you know, if you're pursuing this as a professional thing, what are you really doing it for? If you're not, you know, if you're not going to the Olympics, then why should you even bother as a kind of attitude? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are you going to gain from this? What are mm. you really kind of going to get out of it? Um, they don't really understand that, you know, it's it's a lifestyle um kind of a healthy way of living life to exercise mm-hmm. regardless of whatever exercise it is that you're doing um they don't really appreciate you know the kind of the the you know the 
body image that comes with being an athlete you know you're going to gain muscle it's not really seen upon as being oh very feminine so you still have these kind of ideologies that are still going around but things are changing especially when it comes to like in Dubai I was really surprised to see so many women you know partaking so many female rowers uh, mm -hmm. from the UAE you know wearing hijab not wearing hijab all mm -hmm. you know really enthusiastic about the sport uh, in Saudi as well the interest that's seen just with the introduction of indoor rowing the number of women that have come out you know and really have you know, shown an interest and partaken in all the, you know, the events that have been held. Mm -hmm. It's really, you know, it, it, it really kind of, it helps, um, you know, other younger, the younger generation to see actually, you know, we're slowly, slowly overcoming these kind of this backward way of thinking when it comes to women in sport. Mm. Um, and you can pursue something as a passion, you know, you don't actually need to have, you know, <laughs> Uh, a high and lofty objective goal yeah <laughs> yeah you know what I mean yeah um, and yeah so I, I get so it's interesting you mentioned that because I remember I got um, contacted over my um, over social media and I remember one a girl had contacted me and you know she wanted advice and she's saying my parents are you know not really happy with me partaking in sport you know I wear hijab I really mm -hmm. want to start rowing but I'm not sure how to kind of navigate it so mm -hmm despite all the advances that we have made, um, you know, it's, there's still so many different barriers, mm -hmm. especially, you know, individually for different people, different communities and cultures that are still being faced. So it's difficult when, you know, your parents are not really supportive. Mm -hmm. um, they don't see the point of you doing, you know, pursuing sports at university. They want you to concentrate on your studies. Um, you know, they, you know, think that, you know, you should be kind of pursuing more traditional goals like getting married or getting mm. a degree, which the thing is, I don't think there's, you know, it's not an all or nothing kind of scenario. Yeah, exactly. You can do multiple things at the same time, you mm -hmm. know, take that. And I did advise this, this girl that, you know, you should speak towards the health benefits of exercise and how it's mm -hmm. going, you know, and your mental health as well. It really can kind of help dealing with issues at home dealing with issues just in generally speaking when it comes to kind of um you know academic issues that you may be facing and stresses mm -hmm. um so there's i think we need to just emphasize more the benefits and people will be hopefully more receptive mm -hmm. uh, to yeah involving you know women in sports yeah. And as you said, you know, you can just do everything. For example, you are doing a full-time job, but also doing the rowing on the side. So it's all about prioritizing what you really want to do and trying to find the time for it. But yeah, it, it's a bit of a shame sometimes when other people are not allowing you to do it. Yeah. So. Or have these, and they, you know, I, for a while, while I was, you know, rowing at Oxford, I wasn't really taken seriously. Mm. I, I did get that sense by other people. It was just like, oh, I don't know why you're doing this. It's a bit pointless. You <laughs> Just know? focus like, on your PhD. PhD. Yeah, or it's it's as if, oh, where's this going to take you? Yeah. You know, it wasn't seen as an option. Oh, you're going to, you know, you're going to pursue it more, you know, more seriously. Why would you do that? Mm. Oh, yeah, you know, um, do you think you're that good? Or do you, mm. you know, <laughs> sort <Yeah>. of undermining <laughs> your ability, which is really discouraging. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think also, you know, just being a minority amongst um, especially in Oxford, you know how mm. it is. Mm -hmm. um, being like, I I noticed that I was probably the only hijabi that I came across. You know that in rower, definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, so it was it was also that kind of you know I was aware of the fact that I stuck out like a sore thumb, like literally <laughs> like a lollipop. My yellow yeah. my yellow hijab would like literally. <laughs> that's how they would kind of you know follow us on the water oh look there's mm. the yellow hijab okay that's our crew okay we can cheer now <laughs> <laughs> I sort of became a mascot but yeah. yeah um it was interesting to see like the different attitudes oh you know don't you get hot in that or don't you feel uncomfortable or you know when it's you know time to celebrate they get the champagne now although my 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 club was very kind of supportive they would bring mm. me orange juice as you know or apple mm -hmm. juice or non-alcoholic drinks to kind of mm -hmm. oh you know so that I would feel included so that was a really nice thing um but generally speaking um you know no one would really acknowledge the difficulties that you would have to kind of endure when it came to finding the right clothing 
you know you mm. couldn't like wear the tight lycra stuff it's just mm-hmm. not appropriate so you had to find you know I had to find you know other clothes that would you know enable me to perform but at the same time remain modest mm-hmm. um, and that's a, a situation that I think whether you wear hijab or not is something mm. that you, you face mm-hmm. um so yeah there was all these kind of these kind of things that I came came across yeah didn't you like do like a makeshift waterproof hijab at some point no so I didn't I used to use the whole like two-piece hijab that the cotton one which um is problematic for rowing because because it absorbs water surely yeah and yeah and you tend to overheat it's not very kind of like breathable yeah um so but I mean it was good in the winter months but Mm. in the summer months no it was and and that probably would contribute to you know your performance not being at its optimum especially if you yeah if you don't have the proper clothes which I've now more recently found out like we've been experimenting with my coach with what works and what not, what doesn't work. And when, when the Nike hijab came out. Yeah, that's I what I was going to ask. <laughs> so I had problems. I used to wear turban style hijab. I used to wear the two piece for racing. I would use, used to wear the two piece um, for training, just general training. I would wear the turban hijab, but that I literally that one time, I think it almost fell off. So I was literally rowing with one hand and one hand on my head, just like literally, oh, I cannot be Not ideal. with you. Yeah. With the, you know, I'd just become a meme or something. <laughs> like, I was running through my head. Yep. Um, so when the Nike hijab came out, I was really happy. And I know there was a lot of controversy surrounding mm. it. And a lot of people were using, you know, identity politics and saying, you know, oh, they just want to make money off of us. And mm. but in actual fact, for someone that... Um, someone that was actually kind of competing at that level intercollegiate races that kind of thing you know having to you know have uh, putting yourself through a grueling training session you needed I needed something that would be breathable functional okay look uh, look decent (laughs) Mm. Um, uh, and uh, you know something that I really appreciated and benefited from and still do because that that is the hijab that I do wear when I when I row now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah it's just easier to wear you don't have to fiddle around with it it stays in place um, it's breathable it's waterproof mm. um, but I still struggle when it comes to kind of um, other attire so like trousers mm. it's difficult and tops as well because you don't want you can't be wearing too long a top otherwise it will get caught in the slide yeah mm. and you know you also don't you know it's it's just it's really difficult finding that balance between you know maintaining a modest modest appearance and mm. also you know you know uh, in, you know maintaining functionality as well <laughs> but i'm surprised that no one has like started doing a line of you know modest uh, sportswear well, they have they have there's a lot that yeah, they but have but are they not good it's not that they're not good it's just they're not specific for rowing ah so we need a specific rowing one yeah which business I'm not sure idea alia <laughs> you should just do yeah. it <laughs> yeah i know i know i've had a different number of ideas what you know what we could do and how we could do it uh but yeah that's probably something for the future though <laughs> yeah well but i have a final question for you um looking back over your whole career whether as a cancer researcher or as a rower what's one time where you can think of which is like a good memory or happy memory where you felt like you were really glad that this is the path that you chose I think it would have to be at the Asian champions championships in um South Korea okay um that was like an amazing experience for me um it was the first time in a single skull as a lightweight kind of Saudi rower um you know racing along alongside you know athletes from asia um mm-hmm. that was an exhilarating experience and i was just like you know after that i was just like oh this is definitely i, I want to medal you know <laughs> I, I want to achieve something like um you know i, I want to, you know i i i really want to be ambitious when it comes to what i can do with the rowing mm-hmm. um and although that was my first kind of international um rowing competition on the water in a single skull which <laughs> you know was scary as hell mm-hmm. um everything from the you know that when we got to south korea to the training up 
up until the, the actual race day mm-hmm. to the you know the heats and then the final to the weighing in to kind of seeing the other athletes the competition um you know it was an, a really 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 like kind of I really like that experience you know being in a different country as well rowing on different water um yeah that kind of just you know it just really reinforced the fact that you know I, I really love this sport and mm-hmm. you know regardless of whether I continue um later on in life to compete which I don't think which I think I will do uh, mm-hmm. but you never know how life turns um I think you know I yeah like I said I don't see myself giving up on rowing I see myself you know <laughs> being an 80 year old still having her, her little boat you know docked oh outside yeah <laughs> docked outside a house you know with mm-hmm. like um you know going out for I don't know mornings out on the water I, I yeah. can see myself doing that um so yeah and that 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 really that experience was kind of really you know uplifting and as scary as it was um you know it really kind of ignited that fire mm-hmm. um you know I want to achieve something I want to kind of really get good at this mm-hmm. um you know as be- as best as I can basically mm-hmm well, that um, was very wholesome. You don't know. You don't know what you're capable of until you push yourself. Yeah. And yeah. and I mean, you've done amazing so far. So that'll Thank be you. really Thank cool. Uh, uh, so therefore, in 2022, I'll get my pom-poms ready, yeah? <laughs> yes. Everything, I hopefully, if everything goes to plan, yeah, get your pom-poms ready. <laughs> Perfect. I am excited. Well, thank you, Alia. This has been so much fun. No, I hope you enjoyed you so yourself. Inviting me. No, thank you so much. I did. It was a really nice conversation. Good to get together again. Yeah. Well, thank you and good luck. Thank you. <laughs>